While not as glorified in popular media and guidebooks as Manhattan or Brooklyn, Queens contributes a whole lot to what makes New York City New York City. It's home to the city's two airports and the city's only working farm. It's also touted as the most ethnically diverse county in the United States. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're exploring Queens, New York. The mainly residential borough has long been considered a place you don't go to unless you live there. But the borough is definitely a place we found worth exploring. Take a listen to some residents who sing the praises of the Queen's way of life. Uh, my name is Mary Smith, and I live in Astoria, Queens. I grew up here before it became such a diverse neighborhood, and I have to say that I enjoy it more now since there are so many different people living here, different ages, people from different countries. People are friendly here. Uh, my name is Jin John. I'm from Korea, and now I'm living in Astoria. It's clean, better than Brooklyn. That's it, yeah. Uh, my name is John Ramirez, and I live in Whitestone. Queens. This quiet, nice neighborhood. Every morning, people say hi to me. Bus drivers say hi to me. Sometimes I forget my magic card. They'll still let me in. My name is Adeline Guerrero. I live in Elmhurst, Queens. You can walk down every block and find different type of people. Like down 74th Street, there's all like the Indian town. And down on Broadway is the Chinese and the Asians. And then down Roosevelt is the Hispanic. So Every place is very diverse around here. My name is Hugo Hurtado. I'm from Woodside, Queens. I was born in Elmhurst Hospital, so I love Queens. The people, they're, they're, they're nice, but they're right here, they're tough. Like, they don't play here. Like. Queens native Nicole Steinberg describes Queens this way. It's not the prettiest or most memorable borough, but she says it's worth the trip on the 7 train. Steinberg calls Queens New York City's biggest underdog. In an ode of sorts to Queens, Steinberg compiled stories, poems, and essays about the borough into a book called Forgotten Borough, Writers Come to Terms with Queens. Nicole joins us this morning. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. You are a self-described Queens girl. What does it mean to be a Queens girl? Oh, you know, it uh, it comes from a childhood of uh, being kind of the outsider, uh, the underdog, uh, no matter where you are, whether you're in Manhattan or Long Island, uh, not knowing exactly where you belong. Um, it comes from people saying, you know, oh, I don't know a lot about Queens. Uh, tell me about it. People who moved to New York from other places in the country who you know, never go into Queens at all unless they're going to, you know, a U.S. Open match or uh, to get Indian food in Jackson Heights. That's pretty much all they know about it. So um, the reason that I decided to do this book was because I wanted to share my love of Queens with everyone else and just make sure that people didn't forget about us. What is it that you love about Queens? I love how diverse it is, um, how it's the most diverse county in the entire United States, uh, how... There's an amazing range of food and culture and just so many things to do that people just don't know about. It's all out there in Queens waiting for everyone. Um, and I just love our underdog spirit. You know, we've got the Mets. You know, we root for them every year and they never win. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just it's certain it's a certain lifestyle that that's in Queens that, um, you know, you don't see reflected in the other boroughs as much. How do you describe Queens for folks not familiar with this area of New York City? 
I always say it's big. That's the first thing that I always say, because people sort of assume, especially in other boroughs, that Queens is sort of Long Island City, uh, Astoria to get your Greek food, uh, Jackson Heights to get your Indian food, and that's about it. And um, I grew up in Jackson Heights, but my mother worked all over the borough. So um, I constantly went from neighborhood to neighborhood. So I know a lot about everywhere from Jamaica to Douglaston. And um, there's just so many places that people don't ever go to in Queens that I feel like they should explore. It's really worthwhile. It's a huge place. There's so much going on. You have an essay in the book titled Between the Boulevards because you quite literally grew up between boulevards. Is that something a Queens resident would get right away while the rest of us might have to ask, what does that mean that you grew up between boulevards? Yes, I think so. Um yeah, I grew up on Northern Boulevard and Junction Boulevard, pretty much at that intersection. And um, a few years ago when I lived there, I lived on Queens Boulevard. So these are major thoroughfares in Queens that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Uh, there's a lot about Queens topography that people get confused about, the boulevards being one thing and the fact that you could live on 21st Street and 21st Avenue. And it seems like you're living at the the center of the universe to some people, and they say, how can that be? How could you live on the same street at once, twice? The book includes the works of 24 writers, including yourself. How varied are their takes on Queens? They're extremely varied. Um, I wanted to make sure that we had a range of voices um, from people who came to Queens from other places, from people who grew up there, people who... um, have immigrant experiences, um, first generation, second generation. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of different voices and um, coming at it from many different angles. How did you find these voices? Uh, Some people I knew. uh, I had the idea to do the book years ago. Uh, I said, you know, I love Queen so much, and I talked about it to everybody that I had this idea for a book and I wanted to do it. And I just kept meeting all these people who seemed to have Queen stories of their own, whether they had moved there from somewhere else or... They grew up there or they knew someone who grew up there. And it just kind of came together organically that way uh, between the people who I knew. And then I reached out to some authors who I desperately wanted to include in the book. And uh, a lot of them were very amenable to it. And um, all but two of the pieces in the book are original pieces. So I'm really lucked out. What story or poem in the book resonates with you most? Oh, it's like choosing one of my children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. There are some really great ones. Maybe I'll give you like a small handful. Um, The book uh, ends with a story called Flight by Rigoberto Gonzalez, who is a poet for the most part. This is a beautiful short story about um, being uh, in a family of immigrants in Queens. And um, it's from the point of view of a person who has never left his neighborhood in his entire life um, and how he dreams about leaving. Uh, there's another story called Eating East Elmhurst by Molly McCloy, uh, which is a fantastic nonfiction piece about how she moved to Queens from Brooklyn during a difficult time in her life. And because she was living in the neighborhood of Elmhurst, she encountered all of this amazing food that she had never tried before um, from different cultures, different cuisines, and how she ended up, in a way, eating East Elmhurst. Um yeah, th- those are two great ones. I mean, they're, they're all really great. There's a story about um, Maspeth, which I feel is an up-and-coming neighborhood in Queens by Margarita Shalina. A story and, about uh, the oil tankers there that were destroyed, right? That's right. That's right. And um, 
it's it's her experience living there during the time of September 11th and how that area lost a lot of um, policemen and firemen to um, to 9-11 they were, who were first responders and what that's like kind of like not being on the scene but seeing it from far away and, and how the oil tanker incident resonated with uh, the events of 9-11. I especially enjoyed Margot Rabb's essay titled Love and Shame. Her story mm-hmm. talks about the rules of interborough friendships, such as you cannot expect your Manhattan friends to come visit you in Queens, and all social life will inevitably center around your Manhattan friends' apartments. You grew up in Queens. Are there such rules? I think so. I mean, I, I lucked out because I went to high school in Queens, so uh, most of my friends were there, but they were all very scattered. Uh, one of my best friends lived in the Bronx, and I talk about her in my introduction, uh, she came all the way from the Bronx to Flushing uh, every day and had to go all the way home, uh, and it took her about an hour and a half. And uh, I don't think I saw the inside of her home for about three years after I met her. Um, and yeah, and I did not really venture into Manhattan that much uh, when I was growing up. My mother barely let me cross the street by myself, let alone go into Manhattan. So uh, that was a different world to me growing up. Queens was sort of, you know... A foreign place. It was like a little island. I also very much appreciated Juanita Torrance Thompson's four poems about Queens. In particular, we'll always have Queensborough Bridge. Can I ask you to read that poem for us? Oh, sure. We'll always have Queensborough Bridge. Layer upon layer, like gray strawberry shortcake, your levels thrust into the skyline, linking Queens to Manhattan. Buses and trucks roll past your juxtaposed steel beams. People glide by in cars to work, school, travel, or play. You are taken for granted, you metallic wonder. We're sure you'll always be there, like Mount Everest, despite erosion, rain, sleet, fog, snow. We assume you'll be there, jutting skyward, like a giant mythological behemoth. And like in fairy tales or Monopoly, you'll always be a free passage, forever interlocking our majestic burrows, as we travel to our destinations in our separate but intermingled lives, meshing into one great tree with quintuplet burrow branches. Do you think that just Queens gets short-shrifted when it comes to people thinking about literary talent? I do. Um, It was a challenge for me to find people uh, for the book, and um, the process was organic. I did happen to find a lot of people, but... You know, they, they weren't out there on their own. Um, they weren't, you know, touting the fact that they were from Queens necessarily. Um, I think it is an up-and-coming place, though. Uh, a few years ago, they uh, developed a poet laureate program in Queens. So now we have a Queens poet laureate. And uh, I keep hearing about reading series that pop up there, uh, especially in the neighborhoods of Jackson Heights and Long Island City. And uh, I think it's starting to grow. It's flourishing as a literary community. And the dust jacket of the book notes that Walt Whitman called Queens home, so did Jack Kerouac, and so did Paul Simon. Yeah, we've got some some big ones. <laughs> when you actually start to do research on Queens, it is amazing how many people have connections there. Everybody from Paul Simon to Nicki Minaj, you know. I mean, uh, we're pumping out culture makers in Queens. Who do you hope reads this book most? My hope was that it would appeal to people who don't, even live in New York, let alone Queens, Um, that there's something universal about the tale of Queens. I was hoping that people would see it as a microcosm for America almost, um, and that the stories would reflect on that. 
definitely, I think people who live in New York, who have ties to New York, uh, should read it. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I would hope that the message serves beyond that population as well. Great. Nicole, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Nicole Steinberg is a Queens native and the editor of Forgotten Borough, Writers Come to Terms with Queens. She's also the editor-at-large at Lit Magazine. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're exploring one of New York City's often overlooked boroughs, Queens. I talked with the borough's historian at his Flushing apartment. My name is Jack Eichenbaum. And uh, I do whatever I want now because I'm retired for eight years from the Department of Finance in New York City. I'm a geographer by training, and um, I have developed since retirement an awful lot of uh, special interests that call on that training. So how did you move from a city assessor to the Queens historian? Well, I've been involved in Queens for a long time. I am a native of Queens, and... Um, One of the things I've been doing for a long time, although much more so now that I'm retired, is walking tours. And I particularly specialize in Queens. And in Queens, I specialize in the changing neighborhoods of Queens. Because if anything uh, describes Queens more than anything now, it's uh, the fact that it's an immigrant borough. Fifty percent of the population of Queens is foreign-born. And even a greater percentage is in school or in the working force. Queens is perhaps the most diverse place in the world, right? Yeah, it's very hard to prove that statistic, but for a large jurisdiction, it is kind of amazing how many native languages there are, how many children of who speak different languages when they go to school, how many neighborhoods there are that reflect uh, a certain kind of immigrant. It's very diverse, and as you walk around Queens, you, you'll see neighborhoods that are very mixed with all kinds of people, and then neighborhoods that kind of cater to people from certain areas. Has Queens always been this diverse throughout its history? No. Uh, Queens pretty much started out with English settlers from New England. The Dutch were more liberal. This was a Dutch colony. It was called the New Netherlands, uh, and it was right adjacent to New England. And the settlers in New England were leaving England for religious freedom, but once they got here, they kind of set up their own little religious colonies, and uh, it wasn't an easy place for diversity. So many people from New England moved to the New Netherlands, particularly into Queens, because that was the first kind of county that they encountered uh, in the direction that they were going. And so they were mostly English settlers representing various religions from England that were not easy to practice in England, and particularly the Quakers. Yeah, I understand that the Quakers had a pretty hard time here in Queens. Yes, but once they got over that hard time, they... Something happened that made this probably the greatest historical event that ever happened in Queens was the Flushing Remonstrance. What is that? Peter Stuyvesant, who was the last and probably cruelest governor that New Netherlands had, was afraid of the Quakers. He also didn't really like other religions, particularly um, uh, anything that wasn't the Dutch Reformed Church, which was essentially the Church of Holland. But the Dutch already in Holland were very liberal and other religions were very well established as the Jews were. And Stuyvesant reluctantly allowed Catholics and allowed Jews to settle in New New Amsterdam. The biggest threat to him were the Quakers. Quakers were coming from England. They were not welcome in England. They were strange. If you know Quakerism at all, they stand for peace. They won't fight for you. They don't have a traditional kind of 
church that's very de- well decorated and they don't have, really have a leader or a priest. They do a lot of communal things. I think people might call them socialists today. And they've been very, very, they've always been on the left and very active in anti war movements and civil rights movements, even till uh, the current century and the last century. <clears throat> so Stuyvesant e- issued an edict that anyone who would help the Quakers establish their religion, the Quakers could actually come, but they couldn't practice their religion. And anyone who would help the Quakers would be jailed. And in Flushing, they didn't like that. In Flushing, the settlers, who were mostly of English origin and different varieties of Protestantism and not particularly churchgoers, said that we have. We were told that when we set up set up our town in the in the um, in the uh, bylaws of our town given to us by the Dutch, we had freedom of conscience, and therefore we, the thirty settlers of this town. Uh, on the site where the Flushing Armory is now, there's a sign there, uh, signed a document called the Flushing Remonstrance where they stood, stood up to Peter Stuyvesant and said, we're for freedom of re- effectively, we're for freedom of religion and we don't think what you're doing is right. So that's in 1657. And by 1659, John Bowne, who was one of the settlers here, he didn't sign the Flushing Remonstrance, but Quakers did come to Flushing, and he fell in love with a Quaker woman, and he allowed the Quakers to worship on his land here in Flushing. That's right across the street from me, the, the Bound House. I don't know if you passed it on the way. I did. Okay. And he allowed Quakers to set to worship on his land. Then he was put in jail and sent back to Holland for trial. But he was found innocent because of the clause in Flushing's uh, document, uh, um, charter of, for this town that there could be freedom of conscience. And so the Quakers sparked a revolution here. That was uh, freedom of religion, and it's been going ever since. Once the Quakers were here, that opened the door for the blacks because they were, you know, the Quakers were very anti-slavery and the Underground Railroad, and they allowed a black church to get developed here, all kinds of things. So, Jack, when did the non-European faces start moving into Queens? 1965 is a very important year because two things happened in 1965 that kind of coalesce here in, in Queens. First of all, it's the second year of the Second World's Fair. The Second World's Fair in Flushing Meadow Park was held in 1964 and 1965. So it was a two-year fair, and there's an intervening year that the people who are at the various pavilions sleep over. Well, the closest place to sleep over when you're working at that fair is here in Flushing. And also, that fair was a, not a legitimate World's Fair. Robert Moses wanted to have a World's Fair. We, we weren't supposed to have one according to World's Fair calendars, but we hadn't had one anyway. And it's a Cold War World's Fair, so it mostly uh, attracted our political allies in Asia and in Europe, NATO and CETO. And two of the biggest pavilions were South Koreans and Taiwanese, who were our allies against communism in Asia. And so they, for their, for relatively small countries, they had large pavilions, and they slept over in Queens. And these were relatively well-educated people who spoke English because they were working on their pavilions. And they were in position in 1965 for something else that happened, which was the new immigration laws. <clears throat> in 1965, we threw out the old quotas by country, and we developed a new set of immigration laws which favored people who were educated, had skills that we needed, uh, or who could bring money into the country and start a business, 
or who had relatives who already lived here. In the case of the Taiwanese and the Koreans, they didn't have the last category. But you know, Taiwan and South Korea were growing very well, and if they really wanted to make it big, they wanted to move here, open businesses, and uh, uh, and also people were in the medical professions. I don't know if when you walked here, you might have seen all the acupuncture clinics, all that kind. Of, so many of the people of those kinds of people came here, where they could do better and make more money. <clears throat> now, South Korea and Taiwan have very strong economies. So the migration has slowed down. And probably as many people are going back as coming here, but we have a big influx of people from from other parts of China now that there's already a Chinese base here. So 65 has that incredible coincidence, and many other peoples from of New, the South Americans are just down the road in Jackson Heights. When you came here on the number seven train, uh, there are several stops where the Colombians. That all goes back to the same time period. South Americans were our friends; they were here for the World's Fair. So, you know, that kind of starts at the same time, yeah. What impact did the construction of the Queensboro Bridge have on Queens? At the same time that the Queensboro Bridge was built, there were two major arterials that were built from all the roads that led to the bridge. One is Queens Boulevard and the other is Northern Boulevard. Northern Boulevard is right out here, half a block away. And what year are we talking about here? 1909. And so those roads were in place uh, when the bridge was built. When the bridge is built also, there is an elevated train that goes over the bridge on the upper level. We don't have that anymore. No trains go over the bridge. But an elevated train went over the bridge, paving the way for the, the infrastructure of the bridge being also the infrastructure for the first two subway lines that come into Queens. Uh, that's about eight years later. Uh, when the N and what we now call the N and the Q terrain go to Astoria and the number seven line goes out to Flushing. At that time also, the Second Avenue elevated train in Manhattan also went out of the bridge and followed the number seven, not as far as Flushing, but to Corona. So a big impact did that have? The the decade, the 10 years following 1909 were amazing. Not only what I just told you, but also the Penn Station opens in 1910 and you have the electrification of the Long Island Railroad. And effectively, New Jersey Transit goes through Penn Station and can come out in Queens, as Amtrak does. Um, so you have the electrification of the Long Island Railroad, all the suburban, suburban trains going into Queens, uh, into Penn Station with a number of stops in Queens, but also going further out into Nassau and Suffolk County. So what does that mean? Does that mean simply more people are moving into Queens at the time? In 1910, you had... 1910, Manhattan had its highest population ever, and suddenly people weren't restricted to that island anymore, and people could go, middle-class people could move out of Manhattan, particularly a place like Harlem, which was relatively new, and instead of being confined to a kind of a row house with a small yard, move into suburban situations in eastern Queens, Nassau County, Westchester County, New Jersey, on all these new rail and subway lines. And so there are boom years uh, between 1910 and 1930 in the outer boroughs and in the nearby suburbs, and the, there's a decline in Manhattan population. Let's talk about names and where names came from. First of all, Queens. Where does the name Queens come from? Okay, Queens. You know, my, my British, my history, my British royalty history is. I, I, I kind of don't get into it too much. I'm not a royalist, but when the Dutch came, they didn't have what we call counties. And they just had townships like 
what we know, what we now call Flushing in Jamaica and Newtown, which we call Elmhurst now. When the British took over in the 1660s, they introduced the county level of government. And the counties in what we now call Brooklyn were Kings County, and the counties in what we now call Queens were Queens County, named for the king and the queen at the time, who was King Charles number something or other, and his queen, who was a Portuguese queen, Catherine of Braganza. A number of years ago, Portugal wanted to donate a statue of Catherine of Braganza, which would face the harbor in the East River, uh, on the East River in Long Island City. But it turned out she was pro-slavery, and it was very controversial. She wasn't a particularly good queen, so uh, nobody really wanted to have that. How about Flushing, where you were born and now live? Flushing as a Dutch name, Vlissingen, which got anglicized to Flushing, and literally it means flowing water. Jamaica? Jamaica was originally Roosdorp, or Red Town, for some reason, um, but that got changed to Jamaica by the British. And similarly, we had Middleburg, which was a little town in Holland, also right near Vlissingen, and the British changed that to Newtown. Now we call that area Elmhurst. Louis Armstrong, the jazz great, lived in Queens. John Bound, you talked about him. Who are among the other prominent Queens residents throughout history? Okay, Edie Gourmet grew up here. Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet lived here for a while. Um, here in Flushing, have you ever heard of the Gibson Girl? No. Gibson Girl was a was a, a model. There was a guy named Gibson who was a who who. Modeled people, modeled women for fashion magazines, and it was something called the Gibson Girl. That was a certain look, and he lived here in Flushing. Um, oh, names escape me when I'm talking to you. This is what happens when you're 70 years old. Um, the founder of the Bo- American Boy Scouts was here from here in Flushing, and there's a plaque on the supermarket here at Roosevelt Avenue and um, Bound Street. Why the supermarket? Daniel Carter, Daniel Carter Beard, because that's where the house had been. That's where the house had been until they tore it down and built a supermarket many years ago. Um, Louis Armstrong, of course, lived here. Uh, Ethel Merman was born in Astoria. Tony Bennett was born in Astoria. Now I'm starting to reel them off. If you want, you can go to Wikipedia and do Flushing or any neighborhood in Queens, and you'll see who, who lived there. Lots of people, lots of movie stars in Bayside, where I grew up. Uh, Bayside in the silent era was the... Um, Beverly Hills of its time and um, Mary Pickford and Mae West and W.C. Fields all lived here for a while I understand that you are a champion Scrabble player and I also understand that Scrabble was invented right here in Queens right in Jackson Heights by a man named Alfred Butts who was an architect and attended the Methodist Church on 35th Avenue in Jackson Heights and he, in fact, designed their community building, which is right next to the church at, I think, 82nd Street and 35th Avenue. And it was in that building, and there's a plaque on that building where his wife kind of perfected the game by playing it with um, some of her friends at the church. And um, Butts lived there for many years. Uh, later, he moved away, but it's Jackson Heights where the neighbor, where the game was invented and, and tried out. So, and Queen- there's a, Oh, there's a corner at 81st Street and 35th Avenue, where the streets, there's a special street sign. It's a historic district, so it's brown. But on the street sign, they spell out 37th, 35th Avenue with the A with a 1 and a V with a 4. 
just like on Scrabble tiles. And it is true, you do play Scrabble competitively, I right? I do, not as well as I used to. I start forgetting different words, and you're not as sh- I'm not as sharp as I used to be. So Queens put out Scrabble. Queens put out a lot of great talent. What about manufacturing? Is Queens known for anything in particular? Absolutely. Steinway Pianos, Steinway Street in Astoria, and Steinway Pianos are still manufactured here. The ideal toy company here with the Barbie dolls was here. Um, Elmhurst Dairy is still here. That's where a lot of milk is still processed, and you'll, you'll see Elmhurst Dairy milk containers. That is processed and packaged in South Jamaica. Um, there was the Lalance Gross Gene Tinware Factory uh, in Woodhaven um, along um, Atlantic Avenue, right by, the, right by the main line of the Long Island Railroad. Uh, I'm going to be writing an article on industry in Queens. Uh, there was Poppenhusen's, Conrad Poppenhusen of College Point's hard rubber factory in College Point, which is what made College Point grow into a major industrial center. There were a number of small industries there as well. Jack, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Jack Eichenbaum is the Queens Borough Historian. You can learn more about Queens and his tours at geog, like geography, nyc.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. Don't forget you can get past episodes of Cityscape. Visit our archives at WFUV.org slash Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. <laughs>